Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You can find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty.
On Wednesday nights, we have been studying the book of Jeremiah. And one thing that we have seen consistently in the early chapters of the book of Jeremiah is the prediction that God was going to bring Babylon and the Chaldeans down on Jerusalem. And it was going to be a time of absolute terror for Jerusalem. There was going to be famine. There was going to be the sore. There was going to be pestilence. There was going to be war. And yet throughout it all, God kept saying that he was the one that was doing it. He's the one that was going to bring Babylon down on Jerusalem. In the last 48 hours, we have watched God bring Hamas down on Israel. Just never forget who's in control. The same God who not only predicted that he was going to bring Babylon down on Jerusalem, he then did it to demonstrate that he's true to his word. He's doing the same thing right now today. We're watching the God of the Bible in action right now. It's being reported on all the news channels. It's flooding the internet right now. And the vast majority of the world is going to look at it and pick sides and say the Palestinians are the terrorists or the Israelis are the terrorists because now they're going to fight back. They're defending themselves. Meanwhile, I don't know if you saw this story. It just broke last night that the Taliban, freshly armed with American weaponry, has requested from Iran safe passage through Iran to get to Jerusalem to help Hamas crush Jerusalem. And meanwhile, the parliament in Iran which just received $6 billion. They are yelling in the parliament, death to America, death to Israel. So, you know, well done on the peacekeeping front there. I just want to remind you all, the only reason I bring these things up It's not because I'm interested in politics. I try very hard not to do politics from the pulpit, even though I will occasionally make a snarky comment. But I'm not trying to do politics. I'm trying to remind us to keep our eye on the ball. Remember who's in charge. Remember that what is happening right now in the world, geopolitically, is exactly what has happened in the world forever. It's just that we got used to it. We got used to our comfortable lives. We got used to having food and and clothes. We got used to our computers and our luxuries and our cars and our air conditioning and our carpets and our, we just got used to it. And as a consequence, when things happen, like we've seen in the last 48 hours, we have a tendency to think that that is an aberration. But if you look at the whole scope of human history, that is completely what the world has always been like. Human beings have always been sinful and warlike and hateful, and the focus of their hatred has always been God's people. And it will continue to be. There's a fella sitting in the room right now. I'm not going to name him by name. Three years ago, when the election happened, 
he actually called me and said, why would God let this happen? And I said, never forget what world history is about. World history is about Israel. And everything centers around Israel. And every time we start thinking the world history is about Vietnam or North Korea or even Afghanistan fighting Russia, God puts our focus back to Israel. It just keeps happening. Just remember that this is, biblically, the area of the world where the final warfare is going to break out. That's the area of the world where the final world leader, the Antichrist, as we saw in Daniel, as we saw in Revelation, the final world ruler is going to make a seven-year peace pact with Israel that's going to include them being able to rebuild their temple. And so the Bible keeps putting the focus back on Israel, that little piece of land where God has chosen to place his name and where the worship of God emanates out to the whole rest of the world. So it's no surprise that the whole rest of the world would constantly be at war with that piece of land. So I said, if you think about it, the president who was just voted out was a peacemaker with Israel. Notice that he never got us into a war anywhere and in fact was trying to move the embassy to Jerusalem and make Jerusalem the capital of Israel again. He was a peacemaker in the Middle East. And I said, back then three years ago, watch what happens to Israel. Because I think the reason God let this election go the way it went was because this particular president is going to ramp up the Middle East. I'm not a prophet. I just know what the Bible says. And now we are witnessing, and this is my point again. It's not about politics. I'm a Bible guy. What I'm trying to do is encourage you yet again to just believe the Bible, because if you know your Bible well enough, you can make sense of world history. And you can make sense of what's happening presently, currently in the world based on your knowledge of the God of the Bible and his relationship with Israel in particular. And it's astounding. It's just amazing that Israel, who generation after generation after generation, people have tried to wipe off the earth. Iran right now is saying they're going to nuke them into the sea. Okay. Can they? Nope, because those are God's people. If Israel is ever utterly wiped out as a people, I'm not talking about the country, I'm talking about the people group, the Jews, the Israelites, all 12 tribes that are scattered around the world, if they ever are systematically, utterly eradicated, you know, Hitler tried it. Plenty of people have tried to just eradicate them utterly, and it hasn't happened. But go find me a Hittite. Go find me a Jebusite. You can't. Those are people groups that have just been wiped out. God just got rid of them. They're done. And yet he promised that the Israelites, that the Jews were going to survive until the coming of Christ, the greater son of David, who's going to sit on a throne ruling from Jerusalem, ruling over the collective 12 tribes of Israel, which means they have to survive despite the world's hatred of them and despite the world's 
repeated attempts to completely destroy them. How do I know that they're going to continue right up until the ultimate kingdom comes and the ultimate will of God is done here on earth like it is in heaven? How do I know that's going to happen? Well, number one, they're still here. And number two, the Bible says it. So I'm just trying to tell you again, you're watching physical, earthly, time-bound examples of the Bible being accurate, of the Bible being true. So while the whole world is wringing their hands and saying, oh my, what's going to happen? Here comes World War III. Yeah. And then right as it looks like we're just going to destroy ourselves, there's going to be a peacemaker rise up in the Middle East and everybody's going to look at him and say, who is like the beast? I mean, he's brought peace in a war that looked like it was going to be the war to end all wars. And, and three and a half years into that covenant, he's going to break that covenant, the covenant he made with Israel. And a time of tribulation is going to break out on this planet, unlike anything that's ever happened. And God is going to pour out his wrath on the people of earth. And he's going to finally bring the correction of Israel to an end. And then Christ himself is going to crack the sky, come back to planet earth. His feet are going to touch the Mount of Olives. And he's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And he's going to show himself to be king of kings and lord of lords. And that whole succession of things that the Bible says have to happen starts with a war in the Middle East. Now, am I saying that the one we're watching right now is the one? I don't know. Could be. We just have to sit and watch and find out. But I know this. There's always going to be war in the Middle East because there's always going to be hatred for Israel and the Jews, a kind of hatred that is inexplicable, unexplainable, but it's going to keep happening until the King of Kings returns, and that's what I'm looking forward to. I'm looking forward to the day when my Lord comes back to get me. And if this is the beginning of it, Amen and hallelujah. Bring it on. If not, he'll give us the grace and the patience to endure until he does come back. Some of us might go on ahead. But I'm hoping for that instantaneous change. I'm hoping for that day of glory when Christ comes back for his people. So when you wake up and you see the news out of the Middle East, And you see the crazy building? Because it's going to get much crazier before it's over. But when you see the crazy building, never forget who's in control. He has a long biblical history of proving he's in control. And he's still in control. And he didn't fall off his throne when Hamas attacked Israel. Instead, he brought Hamas down on Israel. Because he's still in control of human history. And that's the God I worship. First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to kind of pick up where we left off last week. Really starting at verse 9 of chapter 2. 
you get kind of a summary of everything Paul has been saying so far. But his summary is also, I believe, dependent on what he already knows of the Old Testament scripture. There are certain declarations made in the scripture about God, about his character, about his word, that I think Paul is depending on in what he is writing here to the Thessalonians. Last week, I said to you that it is easier to go out and preach the gospel and evangelize if you know for sure that the sheep exist. Well, now I want to add a little piece to that, which is it's easier to preach the word and go out and tell people about it and evangelize with the word of God if you know for a fact that the word of God always accomplishes exactly what God sent it to accomplish. Which means, if people don't hear it, God didn't open their eyes and heart to hear it. But every once in a while, just like Paul with the Philippian jailer, every once in a while, God is sending specific people to specific places to say his word to specific people because those people have their name written in the Lamb's Book of Life and they need to hear the gospel of grace. And so God will send them someone to tell them the gospel of grace and then it will accomplish exactly what God sent his word to accomplish. Not only is that a reality in the New Testament, we see it over and over and over again. We call it the effectual call of God as opposed to the generalized call of the gospel that goes into the world. Sometimes his word strikes certain people and they get it and God opens their heart and opens their mind and they are revived, quickened, renewed, born again via that word of God, because the word of God is accomplishing exactly what God sent his word to accomplish. Now, Paul is going to make reference to that very thing here. He's going to thank God for the fact that the Thessalonians understood him because the word of God effectively did exactly what the word of God was meant to do. Now, where did Paul get that concept? Well, he got it from Isaiah 55. So let's go back to Isaiah 55 and see what God has already said about the effectiveness of his own word. I am very, very fond of Isaiah 55, the whole chapter. It is an astounding chapter. In the midst of Isaiah telling Israel about the fact that the Assyrians are coming, and that God is going to bring down the Assyrians on Israel. Here's another example of it. But in the midst of that, there's all these things said about the grace of God and the preserving promises of God, how God is faithful to the covenants and promises that he has made. And so in the midst of all of this anger of God, in the midst of the wrath of God, in the midst of correcting Israel then you read things like chapter 55. Ho, oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the water. You who have no money, come, buy, eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread? Why do you spend your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. 
God speaking says, incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies that were shown to David. God remembering the covenant promises that he made to King David on that basis says, and I'm going to make an everlasting covenant with you. That We know that as the new covenant. And then he says, verse 4, behold, I have made him. He's now speaking of the descendant of David. He's speaking of Christ himself. Behold, I have made him a witness to the peoples, to the Goyim, to the Gentiles. I have made him a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you will call a nation that you do not know, and a nation which knows you not will run to you because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and God will have compassion on him and return to our God for he, God, will abundantly pardon. Okay, so Israel is guilty, guilty, guilty. If we've seen anything in the book of Jeremiah so far, it's God declaring over and over, Israel's just so guilty, guilty of so many things, breaking his Sabbaths, chasing after other gods. And in the midst here of God calling sinful Israel back to himself and promising them that he will pardon them, promising that when they return to him, he's going to abundantly have compassion on them. And then you would think, how? How does God be that gracious? How can God turn to such sinful people? That, by the way, is what we're hearing a lot in the press these days. We're hearing people saying, but Israel, they're the aggressor. Israel, they're the terrorists. Israel, they're the ones that are now bombing back and forth with Hamas and with the Palestinians. And it's Israel's fault. The world would like to tell you that Israel is nothing but guilty like the whole rest of the world and that they are warlike and that they're defensive of their land. Yes, all of that is true. All of that is true. They also happen to be God's chosen people. Aren't you glad to know that God chooses people like that? And yet God chooses people like that. Why? Why does God choose people like that? If it was us, we would say, no way, you've blown it. You had your chance, but you denied me. You had your chance, but you turned to someone else. You had your chance. You didn't follow my rules. You didn't follow my law. You had your chance. Why will he say to these erring, sinful people that he's going to have compassion on them? And that he's going to abundantly pardon them. Verse 8 is your answer. It's because he's not like you. And I'm glad for that. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways, my actions, anything like your ways. Neither are your ways, my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, 
So are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Okay, so what's the distance between us right here and the expanse of the heavens? We've got a couple of telescopes up there circling the uh, earth right now that are showing us things we never knew. Even the things that we imagined might be up there in space, it turns out it's so much more. Things that we thought were stars turn out to be galaxies of millions of stars. We have no idea how expansive the universe is. And among all those billions and trillions of stars out there, the Bible tells us God knows every one of them by name. And the same God who knows all those stars by name knows the number of hairs on your head. Incredible intimacy in the midst of expansive knowledge. And the universe is so far beyond us How much actual influence or control do any of you exert over the universe? None. But why does it work? Because that's the way he made it. That's the way he created it. And he's the one that keeps it running. And he knows stuff that is happening billions of light years from us that we can't even see, that we don't even know. He's there and aware of it. Because his thoughts are so much higher than our thoughts. And his ways are so different than our ways. And I am so glad to know that the God who is like that is also willing to be compassionate and forgiving to demonstrate how much he's not like us. Because we are angry, warlike, hateful people. Just as a race. Just as human beings. We have a tendency to kill and destroy. And yet, God says he's going to have compassion. He's going to abundantly pardon because his thoughts are not our thoughts. And our ways are not his ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts higher than your thoughts And then starting at verse 10, now that we know the kind of God we're talking about, all of that was just to get you to have some sense of the expansive God I'm talking about, the God who's way beyond our comprehension, the God who is just so far beyond our human capacity. That God says that he is the one who brings rain and snow down from the heavens. Even what we would call nature, he takes credit for. Nature works because God created it that way. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and then they do not return there, he understands the science of condensation. Condensation works because God created it. Water comes down onto the earth, it waters the earth, and then it goes up into the clouds again. And then it comes down again. And that cycle gives us food, the basis on which we exist day to day. Something to eat, God takes credit for that. I create all that. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and they do not return to the heavens without watering the earth, and make it 
bear and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Okay, are we all good with that example? Do we all understand that example? Rain comes down, rain goes up. When it comes down, it waters the earth. When it waters the earth, it produces food. Got it? God used that as an example in order to say, that's the same thing I do with my word. The same way I send water and snow to water the earth so that you can have something to eat, that's what I do with my word. Verse 11, so shall my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void or empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Why did God send his word? To accomplish particular things. And because it's the word of an absolute almighty sovereign, his word will always accomplish the thing he sent it to accomplish. And you can look at nature and the way nature works. And you can look at rain. And you know without rain, you get drought, no food. You get rain, you get snow, you get the earth being watered, you get food. Okay, that is the way God designed it, and that is the way that God is controlling it to this very moment. And then he likens that to his own word and says, when he sends his word, it's on purpose to accomplish particular things, and it never fails to do exactly what God sent it to do. Do you have any comprehension of God? Do you understand anything about God? Do you understand anything about God's word? That's because God sent his word to you. How great is that? That his word came to you personally as God was in the process of saving you, regenerating you, opening your eyes, opening your ears, bringing you to an understanding of him. How phenomenally intimate is that? That he would send his word to you. Now, yes, in a generalized sense, we could say that he sent his word, the Bible, to earth in order to accomplish everything that's written about God in its word. That's the big macro overview of his word. But the micro view of his word is that he sent it to you individually. And that's absolutely astounding. Because I figure... Given the universe that I was just trying to describe a minute ago, that we can't begin to comprehend, that we're still putting spacecraft up there and telescopes up there and finding all this stuff that we go, hey, who knew? Look at this. We have no comprehension of what's going on out there in the universe. I figure with a universe like that, he's got plenty to do. (laughs) And yet he took the time. To not only know how many hairs are on your head, no comment, but then to send his word to you, to wake you up, to call you to himself, to draw you to Christ Jesus for your eternal salvation, and that he doesn't do that for everybody. 
because his word accomplishes what he sends it to accomplish. And for some people, that's the word of life. For some people, we wake up. For some people, we praise him and we look forward to the day of Christ's return. We love his appearing. For some people, they hear the word of God and it shuts them down completely. And they hate it. And it's accomplishing exactly what it's supposed to accomplish in the salvation and condemnation of people. So shall my word be, which goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. For you, Israel, you guilty Israel, you, Israel, that are being bombed at this moment, for you will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. Is that happening right now in the Middle East? Is there a lot of peace going on over there? And yet the promise is you're going to go out with joy. You're going to be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills are going to break forth into shouts of joy before you. And all the trees of the field will clap their hands. And instead of the thorn bush, the cypress tree will come up. And instead of a nettle or a thorn, the myrtle will come up. And it will be for a memorial to Yahweh the Lord for an everlasting sign which will not be cut off The same God who brought Hamas down on Israel has made promises like that to Israel. And that's why no matter how hard the enemies of Israel try, they will not be able to stop it. Because you can't fight against that sovereign of God. Okay, that was all introduction. We're now in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Finally. 1 Thessalonians 2, starting at verse 9, as I said, this is almost like a a recapitulation, a summation of what he's been getting at so far. For you recall, brethren, our labor and the hardship and how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. And you are witness. Notice again how often he says, this you know, this you recall. You're the ones who saw it. You are the witnesses to how we behaved ourselves when we were with you. You are witness, and so is God. How devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves toward you believers. Again, this is all Paul defending himself against his critics who apparently said that Paul was in it for self-aggrandizement or for some kind of monetary gain or that he was there being a deceiver, that he was just spreading old Jewish wives' tales. And he's arguing, no, you saw how devoutly, how honestly, how uprightly, how blamelessly we were When we were there, you're our witness. We don't have to go and argue with our critics. You should be the ones who defend us because you saw how we acted among you. Just as you know how we were, and now he lists three particular things. And he's going to say that these three things 
are things that a father would do for his own child. And we're going to find out if Kenneth agrees. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you the same way that a father would his own child. This is the language of instruction. Parakaleo is the word that is translated as exhorting. It's a really interesting word. Para, that prefix, means to draw near or nearby something. And so kaleo, you should know, that's to call. That's to invite. That's to beseech people. And so he says, we called you near. And the way that he called them near was to say, you saw how we were, now be like us. We're an example to you, and so come and be like us. He's, he's even going to say that as we continue through the chapter. The second word, the encouraging word, is paramutheamai. And again, you hear that para word. So it means to relate nearby to console somebody, to comfort somebody by relating to them in a near, close way. So far, does it sound like a dad, Kenneth? So far, this is the way that you instruct and teach your children, is to exhort them to come draw near, to be like you, to follow your example. And then you relate to them, you encourage them, you console them, Imploring is a really interesting word. It's the word marturamai, which has that word martyr right in it. It's the word from which we get laying down your life as a martyr. It means to be an obvious witness, to take record or to testify. And so Paul said, while we were among you, you know you are our witnesses, so is God, that we were devout, we were holy, we were honest, we were upright, we were blameless, we weren't liars. And you know that the way we were is that we exhorted you, we told you to be like us, we drew you near, we encouraged you by relating to you, by consoling you, by comforting you in the midst of the agony, in the midst of the trouble that you're going through, which he's going to reference in just a moment. And then you know that we implored you, each one of you, the way that a father would his own child. We have called you to testify. We have been an example to you. We have been a demonstration, an obvious witness to you. So we have given you all the positive attributes of instruction in the word, and at no point did we ever take advantage of you. So why are you believing our critics? Just as you know, he keeps saying that, just as you know, that's how we were among you. We implored you, we encouraged you, we exhorted you, verse 12 says, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Notice that Paul brought up kingdom language again. Because Paul has this view of Christ that is not limited to 
Christ was here. Christ died. Christ paid for our sin debt. But he is so fully conscious of the return of Christ and the desire for the return of Christ. And being a Jew, he knows that the return of Christ means the coming of the kingdom. And so he has said, God himself has called you into his kingdom, into his glory, doxa, into the glory that only God exists in. He has called you to be part of his kingdom in the glory of the outbreak of the will of God on planet earth so that his will is done here on earth the same way it is in heaven. That's what he has called you to. Now, knowing that about yourselves, knowing that that's what you're headed for, act like it. Walk like it. Be like us, he says. We were honest. We were devout among you. We were blameless among you. So now, Be that way. Use us as your example. Verse 13. And for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received from us the word of God's message. Now, remember what we just read out of Isaiah 55, that the word always accomplishes what God sends it to accomplish. Therefore, he says, now I thank God. His view is always toward the sovereignty of God. And for this reason, we constantly thank God that when you received from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God which also performs its work in you who believe, because the word of God performs its work. So Paul could see in the fact that he came and preached to them, they came to faith and belief in Christ. They were baptized and willing to withstand all kinds of torturous events, all kinds of difficulty, They were willing to withstand all of that and not change their profession. And when Paul saw that in them, when he witnessed their faith and their love for one another, he didn't say, oh, thank you, you validated me. Oh, thank you for being that way. You demonstrated that what I said was true. Instead, he said, I thank God because I got to witness that when you heard the word of God, the word of God accomplished in you the very thing God sent the word of God to accomplish in you. It's wonderful. It's amazing. It's the sovereignty of God written large on your heart. I say every so often, you're saved. I'll say, I'm saved. Collectively, we're saved. And then I'll ask you the question, okay, so if you're saved today, who saved you? And you'll all say, God. Do you understand how astounding that is? God saved you. God, the maker of heaven and earth, who is keeping the universe going, who is keeping every atom spinning, took the time to save you. I'm talking about... Everybody in this room, I know most of you. And God reached down from heaven 
and the methodology that he used was to cause you to hear his word and then believe it. That's the methodology he used to convert you, to change you. And it is all the work of a sovereign God. I don't understand how it is that we can conceive of that and stay standing. I don't understand why we're not all on our face thanking a God like that who would be that kind, that gracious, that forgiving, because I don't know about you, but I got lots to be forgiven for. And that he would send his word to a worm like me is overwhelming. And so Paul says, for this reason, we constantly thank God that when you received from us the word of God's message, You accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Go into any hotel room. You'll probably find a Gideon's Bible in the drawer. You don't have to be a believer to find that Bible in the drawer. I have known people who have actually bragged that when they check into hotels, They find the Gideon's Bible in the drawer, and they put it out in the hallway because they just don't want that book in the room with them. Okay, now, Paul just said that one of the demonstrations that God is at work in us is that when we hear the word of God, we don't take it as just the word of men, which is what far too many people think the Bible is. Far too many people think, well, it's just been passed down through generation and generation, and it's been retranslated so many times into so many languages, and it's been changed so many times. You can't trust it. You can't believe it anymore. That just proves that they don't actually know the history of the Bible or how it is that the text has been handed down to us. But more importantly, the fact that you understand what the Bible actually is. It's the very word of God. And if it is the very word of God, that is a demonstration that the God of the Bible is at work in your heart so that you know that it's the very word of God. Because there are people who don't think it's the word of God, who can reject it who can set it out in the hallway. Whereas, I respect the word of God to such a degree, I've told this story so many times, but I've learned to respect my Bible, just physically. It bothers me when we're done with church here, if I'm walking through the building and I see a Bible on the floor, I pick it up. Because I don't want the word of God under our feet. Once upon a time, I was up in Lexington. This is the story that I've told so many times. I was there with uh, David Morris's very young son, and I had my camera with me, and I had my Bible with me. I had a bunch of stuff in my hands. And so I needed to put everything down on a table, and I set my Bible down, and then I set my camera on top of the Bible, and I put a couple other things down, and... uh, He looked at me, this little four-year-old boy, he looked at me like I had just kicked his dog. I mean, he looked at me with a look of terror, like, oh, this is bad, you just did. And and I saw it on him, and I said, what? 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 And he said, we're not allowed to ever put anything on top of our Bible. 
I said, you're absolutely right. You are totally right. And I took my camera. And do you know, to this day, I can't put anything on top of my Bible. If I set my keys on top of my Bible, no, 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 no. Nothing above the Word of God. The Word of God takes precedent over everything. Okay, why do I know that? Why do I feel that? Why do I believe that? Because it is the same God who sent this Word who also convinced me that it is his word. And therefore, he gets all the glory, not only for the composition of the word, but for the fact that I even believe and trust and live by his word. He gets all the glory for it. And Paul says, that's what happened among you Thessalonians. And I thank God for it. That when you received from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, But for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Jesus Christ that are in Judea. For you also rendered the same suffering at the hands of your countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. What an amazing example for Paul to pick out. Paul is trying to encourage them in their suffering, in their persecution. And he's saying the kind of persecution that you're enduring right now is exactly what Christians endure. And in fact, in Judea, where the church of Jesus Christ got its first foothold, Jews were the first converts to Jesus Christ. And he said, and then they were persecuted. And their businesses were destroyed, and they were thrown out of the temple, and they've been ostracized by their own countrymen. And he says, same thing's happening to you. The same way that I'm being followed around and that I'm being persecuted everywhere I go, the same way that people don't want me setting soothsayers free from their demonic influence, that one got him into jail. The same way that he's being constantly persecuted everywhere he goes, He's seeing the persecution of the church in Thessalonica as proof and demonstration that they're actually Christian. Here, I'll put it this way. Jesus said, woe to you when all men speak well of you. Okay, so we're living in a world that would prefer that all men speak well of them because they're all man pleasers. And so... You know, I'm a nice guy. I'd like people to like me. I, I'm not out there trying to make enemies. But I know people who hate me because of what I say. Because I say the word of God the way the word of God says it. Some of those people who are most adamantly against me also claim to be Christians. They just don't like the idea that God's sovereign. They want to protect their own free will. They want to protect the idea that they chose, they decided, they made him Lord and Savior. And they just so dislike the doctrines of grace or the sovereignty of God that's demonstrated in the Bible. Okay, so Paul here is saying, you Thessalonians are being persecuted, but so is the church in Judea, because that's the pattern of the church. And the fact that you are now undergoing it is a demonstration that the same God who saved them is saving you. And of course he would save them. They're Jews. They're in Judea. He's a Jewish Messiah. It makes sense that they would believe in their own Messiah. But it is a demonstration that God has also chosen you 
that he has also put faith in you, that you understand that this is the word of God, and the way that is proved is also that you are being persecuted by your own countrymen for the fact that you believe it. So next time you're going through some kind of difficulty in this life, the next time somebody doesn't like you for your Christianity, just remember, that's how it's always been. Since the very beginning, you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hand of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. Those Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but they are hostile to men. That is such an interesting little bit of history, this little tidbit that Paul throws in, that the Jews who threw out the Jerusalem believers are the same Jews that both killed the Lord Jesus and killed the prophets. That's something that Jesus actually used as an identifier for them, that they are the ones who killed the prophets. You can read about it in Matthew 23, 37. You probably can quote it by now, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And then he identifies who he's talking about, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her as God was sending prophets to Jerusalem like Jeremiah, like Isaiah, as he was sending prophets to them who were saying, you need to repent, you need to change your way, you need to keep the Sabbath, you need to go back and follow the law of God because God's going to punish you. And so rather than say, oh, listen, God sent us his word. We need to clean up our act. Instead, they said, let's just kill the guy who said it. Let's just stone him to death. So Jesus used that as an identifier for Jerusalem. In Luke 13, starting at verse 32, Luke expands on this a little bit. And Jesus says, go and tell that fox. He's talking about Herod. So he says, you go and tell that fox. Behold, I am casting out demons and performing healings today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I reach my goal. Nevertheless, I must go on my journey today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her young under her wings and you were unwilling. So he's talking to the leadership in Jerusalem and he is identifying Jerusalem as always killing the prophets and killing Jesus. Paul here says that the reason that the believers in Jerusalem were persecuted by the Jews is because they are the same Jews who killed Jesus Christ, who also killed and stoned the prophets, and then drove us out. And Paul concludes they are not pleasing to God, and they are hostile to all men. And they hindered us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they might be saved. With the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. 
but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. That's sobering. Notice that Paul says, they always fill up the measure of their sins. They always do that. You can count on them. That's what they're like. They are unsaved. They don't have the spirit of God. And as a consequence, they will always resist God in his word. They will always fill up the totality of their sins. They're going to accomplish everything that God has sovereignly determined they are going to do. They will always fill it up. You know, when Stephen was being stoned, I say, you know, like you were there. You know, when Stephen was being stoned. One of the things that Stephen said to them is, you do always resist the Holy Spirit. The advocates of free will every once in a while will pounce on that verse. That's right, that's the verb I went with, pounce. Every once in a while, they'll, they'll point at that verse and they will say, See, that proves that you can resist the Holy Spirit. He's not irresistible. Therefore, grace is not irresistible because here Stephen himself said, you always resist the Holy Spirit. And the answer to that is, yeah, but they always do it, which means they didn't have the option to do otherwise. If you always do something, you don't have the choice to do something else. They always fill up their sin. Why? Because that's their nature, that's their character as unredeemed, unsaved people. You can count on it. You can count on the world always acting like the world. You can count on unbelievers to always act like unbelievers. They will sin and they will blaspheme and they will hate you and they'll hate the God that you love. Like Jesus said, if the world hates you, they hated me first. They can't hate you. It's me they hate. And so don't be surprised as you go out into this world. Don't be surprised as you watch the geopolitics of the world. Don't be surprised as you see hatred pouring out against the people of God, against the Christian church, against Israel, the world right now is doing exactly what the world has always done and will always do. And we are seeing a demonstration yet again at this very moment that the Bible is absolutely true and accurate because it described, again, the character and the nature of human beings that don't have the spirit of God the same way that it describes the character and nature of the people who do have the spirit. And if you have the spirit of God, then you're called to walk according to that spirit and to walk in the knowledge that you've been brought into the kingdom, the grace, the glory of our God. And that's astounding. Fall on your face in front of him. But don't be surprised if the world doesn't join you. They have never joined you. They have always resisted it. And when you do, like Paul, when you do see somebody accept the things of God, recognize that that's God's work, God's word, doing the very thing that God has determined it's going to do. And therefore, thank God that he still has sheep and that he has people that he's still in the process of saving. Oh, thank God. You got it?
appreciate you listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.